Well, if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're, uh, we're going through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. We brought this up last week. Do you realize, I just have to emphasize, do you realize that we are reading eyewitness accounts of the one we love? They didn't have cameras then, but they had people that had eyes. And we even find in Corinthians that there was, there was 500 people that even got to see Jesus resurrected. Eyewitness accounts. This is historic. It's a historical narrative. This isn't just some made-up fable. It's not when you read the scriptures. That do you, does, anybody, does anybody read the scriptures in here once upon a time? Anywhere. Because it's not a fable. It's a historical account. It's important that you, you even grasp that. Because sometimes we come into Christianity and we, we kind of adopt the Christian language but we're not really sure of some of the things we believe. We're not anchored in truth. The, the reason that people don't bow their knee to Jesus is because he can't be scientifically proved. It's because they don't want to submit to a Lord. That's what it is. The reason I can say this is because that was me. I, I know that. Is anybody like when people tell them what to do and you have to... You have to surrender your life to, but if you know how kind he is and you know what he did and the Holy Spirit illuminates how much he loves you and you see the wickedness of your ways, something precious happens, but I, I, it's called salvation. But when we're reading this, I just want you all to know that when we're reading the gospel of Mark, we said this before, but Mark was very close to Peter and he was even a servant of Paul and Barnabas. So he, he knew a lot of things that took place during Jesus' ministry. He heard from Peter himself, the, what, Peter the apostle. We, we have eyewitness accounts of these precious truths. And I'm going to endeavor to get us close to the end of chapter 2, but it's, it's not going to happen. I know that. Um, but this first story, if we stayed here all night, we'd be fine. This first story that we get to in Mark chapter 2 with Jesus and the paralytic, the man that gets dropped through the ceiling, I want to talk about this for a moment. I want, to, I want us to look at why this is so powerful because we can't forget. You see, when we read the Bible sometimes, we can forget about the chapter before. We can even forget about the actual book we're reading within the Bible. And Mark is making a case to the Roman church that Jesus Christ truly is Lord and that he rose from the dead, he is alive, and that we already brought up a couple weeks ago about how the, the, the Roman church at this time is being heavily persecuted. Like we're talking about their... Rel Family members, people are getting fed to lions for entertainment. It, it, like people are being burnt in, in gardens because of what they believe in. And they're in this underground church, and somebody hands them a letter from Mark. And somebody begins to teach 
from the eyewitness account of Mark sharing and bringing rest to the hearts of the people that Jesus truly is, Lord. Don't you forget it. Don't, don't grow weary now. And we're here in this room tonight, and we, we do live in a culture where there's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of convenience. And sometimes we just like to add Jesus to our lives instead of realizing that we're supposed to subtract ourselves. We don't add Jesus to our lives. You, you didn't need edits to your life. You needed an exodus from your life. You, you didn't need somebody to just do a couple little edits. You're thinking way too highly of yourself. <laughs> you were dead. I think it's Leonard Ravenhill that said, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men alive. But let's read the first 12 verses. This is a fascinating. Can you guys just, can we really adore him? Can we not just read this and be like, oh, I, wonder, I think that's what he was doing. No, can we like look at this man, this glorious man? And again, verse 1, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Everyone say, he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. <laughs> this is so precious, what we're about to go through together. And I just want to kind of walk through the journey here of a few thoughts that I just want to illuminate about Jesus' claim of being the Son of God. You know, it's, it's really important. I'm going to make this point right before we get going because I was already touching on this. Have, has anybody ever heard all roads lead to heaven before? Have you ever heard things of that nature? That... I just want you to know it's completely false. It's, it, I know that Christians that have been around know that that's just like a laughable statement, but the, it's really important that we understand the way that people perceive. The way that people perceive is, okay, there's, there's Muslims, there's Jewish people, there's people that follow the teachings of Buddha, there's, there's, there's all these different things, and if they're all really passionate, about what they study, won't the overall God 
let them all in on the path that they took. Do you, do you see where the logic, though, is? The logic is if God is this loving God, if, if, if the people's thoughts are that we could all cross-intersect at one point. That is what the world's logic is. Tower of Babel. Getting, let's all, we'll all get there somehow. But the, the problem with that is, and maybe you've seen this example before, but it really helps me. If I go up to Randy, if I go up to him, and I say, you, I already ruined it, but say I didn't know his name. I say, what's your name? Randy. Thanks, John. He, what, what would he say if I called him John? He would be like, no, I said I'm running. No, okay, Larry. It's all good. We're talking. Why, why can't I call you this? Why can't I call you that? Why, why? Do you see that it's, it, it's, it's, it's just complete lunacy to think that we can all call God something different, but he's the same? It, it, it's the fact that we have to understand that there's a lot of passionate Muslims. And the teachings of, from the Quran are, there's some really good teachings in there, just so you know. Give to the poor. Like, you could talk yourself into being a Muslim just based off there's some good things. But you know what Muhammad says? Is he says that Jesus was a really good prophet. But he, he's not the son of God. He says it repeatedly in the Quran. So how can, how, the, the problem then becomes, how can all roads lead to God if Jesus claims he's God? If Jesus claims he's God, he's actually calling all the other ways out, saying they're false. So then we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ a megalomaniac? Maniac? Is he an egocentric person that, is claiming to be God, or is he really God? We can know that in our hearts through faith, but I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of people that need to understand where truth is and to see. And when we're about to read Mark chapter 2, the reason I'm saying this is because Jesus, through Mark's account, Jesus is proving over and over again that Jesus was declaring deity. That he's not just, and you have to even understand the Jews that studied the Old Testament. There are some Jews that didn't believe that the Messiah was actually going to be God. They just thought he was going to be a very, very important prophet. But Jesus is the incarnated God. And it messed with their theology. And their religion. And that's why Jesus is saying, have you not read the scriptures? He's the ones that have been schooled their whole lives in the scriptures. Jesus is saying, get back in the classroom. I am the truth. You say you study me. But I'm talking to you and you have no clue who I am. Because you stuff your brains with theology, but you won't let it touch your heart. There are so many people that can walk you through. There are some people that know theology so well that you might, you might question everything you believe just by hearing them talk. That's why you have to know this book. The end times are among us, and it's those who love truth that will not be deceived. Not just love a favorite preacher. Not just love a favorite. You have to love truth, and Jesus is the truth. And that's why we love the scriptures. 
when the Holy Spirit illuminates them to us, not just our mind, without the assistance of the Spirit of God. So, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Everybody say that again. He was in the house. I love that. You know why I love that? Because what did we find in Mark chapter 1? Whose house was Jesus staying at? Can somebody remember? Peter, right? So it doesn't tell us in Mark chapter 2 whose house, but it says that Peter lived in Capernaum. His house was in Capernaum. And then it says after some days that he went away, it was heard he was in the house. So what we're hearing is that Jesus made his way back into town, and there was a place he liked to stay. And it was Peter's house. Could I remind you all how important it is to host the presence of the Lord? To host him. Did you, did you know that people heard that Jesus was back in Peter's house? And they came to Peter's house because they knew that Peter knew how to host Jesus. And you, what else did we find out about Peter? Remember Luke chapter 5? Oh, we find in Luke's gospel account when Jesus encounters Peter, and they come, what did, what did Jesus ask from Peter? Could I use your boat? And what did Jesus do on that boat? He taught, he preached. What do we see right here in Mark chapter 2? It says, it was heard that he was in the house, and immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer roof to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. What, is, what are we finding right off the gate, right off the bat? Peter would let Jesus preach in his boat, his business. He would let Peter preach. He would let Jesus preach in his house. Who was the authority in Peter's life? It was Jesus. He would let Jesus teach at his business. He would let Jesus teach in his home, his family. Peter was hosting the presence of God by letting Jesus' words be the final authority in all of his life. And that is very important because we live in a day and age where church is a compartment. God is a compartment. But he is looking for those that will host him throughout every arena of their life. Jesus, you can teach at my job. Jesus, you can teach me. You can teach my family. I submit to your teaching. I want, it, I want my family to gather around the table to hear the teaching of Jesus. I want the Sermon on the Mount to be on the hearts of my family. I want them to, uh, that when they go out in business, that they don't just look at the way the world does it, but they let the principles of the word of God be the fortifying agent of the way that they succeed in life. So that way God gets the glory, not man. Do you see that it's important? But isn't it amazing that what is Jesus doing in this house? We don't have record in this account right here that Jesus is doing any miracles right now. It says he's teaching and that people are coming from all over just to hear this man talk. Just to hear him teach righteousness and holiness and, and the ways of God. People are coming from all over and you know who that's going to make a little upset? The Pharisees, the scribes, because they had audiences that would come to listen to them speak. They would have people that would come listen to them. And some of them were good intention. They were, they were following the law. And we got to be watchful that not all the Pharisees, they were, doing what they, were they were doing what they thought was best. Like some, but some of them were very, 
they, they, they just had a lot of wickedness in them. And, and when pride gets exposed, you either surrender or you get more prideful. You get harder. And what we find is that even the scribes, and the scribes were ones that knew the scripture so well. They, they had them memorized. They, they knew. And they're coming to hear Jesus speak because they've never heard anything like this before. What is the last verse that we just read in verse 12? They, we have never seen anything like this before. What did we hear in the chapter before? We've never heard anybody teach with such authority. We, does anybody think that when God would show up that everybody should be saying these things? Do you realize how many things we treat common in our lives? You know, you're, you're a temple for the Holy Spirit. What do you mean your life's mundane? What do you mean your life is worthless? What do you mean? If this is Peter hosting God in a physical house, what is it like to host the Spirit of God on the inside of you as temples? Do you consider what you're about to watch? Do you consider what you're about to listen to? Do you consider who you're going to hang out with? Do you consider? Do you consider? That's, it's so important because if you're hosting him, you're not alone. And that's a good thing because we make horrible decisions when we think we're alone. But when we realize that he purchased us with his own blood. That changes the way you walk into a room. Not arrogantly, but you, you treasure. That's why we have to look at each other and you've been engrafted in. How could I ever look at you in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that would degrade? That's why racism is so demonic. To ever think you're better than someone because of a skin color because of an ethnicity. Do you know how arrogant and bigoted that is? That is completely against Scripture and God's heart. But we find that it says that he preached the word to them, and he's preaching the word. It says that there was no room to come in. How many people are believing that we're going to start having lines out the door for what God is doing here? that this building won't be able to contain what God's doing. Can we dream together? Can we believe that God will visit this city in a way that is not just quotation revival, but it's such a revival that we can't even get the word out of our mouth because it's so holy. That the crime goes down in Pinellas, that even though this is the most dense county, population-wise, there's nothing too big for our Lord. There's nothing to, and it just takes a couple radical people that say, we're going to host him. Even if it's inconvenient, because watch what happens when you have to host the presence of the Lord. It says in verse three, then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, I don't know about you. But if I was Peter, <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. Everybody wants to host the presence of the Lord until it gets messy. Did you know what's funny about being a believer is that, especially in a church body like this, and I'm just being real, 
I, we wouldn't, some of you, we would have no relationship unless it was because of the house of God, because of, but the Lord brings us together and it's almost like I had, I didn't know you were going to be in my life and it's like you dropped through my ceiling <laughs> and now I have to love you and I have to be okay with your mess. But, but if Jesus is in my house, I can have confidence that he will complete that work. If I continue to host him, because he hasn't failed me yet, because what did Peter already experience? He's already experienced a boat full of fish, so he knows that Jesus can provide. So he's not worried about the roof. He's like, well, man, he broke my nets with a, a great catch. Now, now he said, well, I'm going to be a fisher of men, and there's somebody flying through my ceiling. <laughs> catch. I'm a fisher of men. Just like that. And... But the fact is, is that this, there's so many implications here that are so deep that you have to see. This man was not able to get to Jesus. Did you know you were not able to get to Jesus? Did you know that those four men that carried him, you know what they were doing? That was the generosity and the compassion of God on full display that they had heard that this man, Jesus, was healing people, and he was back in the house. And they said, if we can get our friend to this house, he can do it for him. And they had faith. They believed. And because, you know why I knew they believed? Because they carried the guy. And when they got there and there was no room, they're like, we're going to throw you on the ceiling. We're going to get you up there and... This Jesus guy seems really kind, so I think we can, we can pull the roof off. Like, I think it's fine. Like, the scripture says they broke through the roof. If you know anything about first century houses, I, 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 I don't, but I did some research, and it was just it was some timber, and you had mud. You know, you just had some, you know, so it was that there was about a foot of dirt in between the, what was happening. So they had to dig through. So you have to imagine Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden debris is falling through the ceiling. And light is piercing through. And Jesus, this man gets dropped. Now, why, why do I bring it up about the four men, though? Because we all have to realize that we are actually standing on the shoulders of patriarchs and matriarchs' faith. That the reason that we're able to even get on the roof is because of the previous generation's faithfulness to God. And that they have lifted us up on top of the house and have allowed us to be able to be dropped through the ceiling to have an encounter with Jesus. That that man, the paralytic, couldn't take any credit for getting in the middle of that room outside of the faith of those that have gone before him. That's why we need to honor previous generations. That's why we need to honor our parents. That's why we need to have a great honor for those who, who shepherd and, and go after the things of God. Because I don't know about you, but I have a lot of people in the faith that, I, that I'm so thankful for the way God has used them. And when we read Hebrews 11, I want to let you know there's only one hero and his name's Jesus. But the Bible does show honor where honor is due. And when we show honor and this man, and why is this so important though? Because did you, did you read what it says? It says, verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, did you see that? When he saw their faith, this is what he says to this man. He says, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Do you know what's so powerful? Do you know what you just read? 
Do you know what you just read? This man was brought there by his friends to get a physical healing. Their faith was activated to believe that if they could get him there, that he would get a physical healing. But Jesus, being the all-discerning one, he can look past the obvious need to see the ultimate need. And when they had done all those, and you know what's so powerful is he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. What is he calling him? He's calling him son. We, we all know, we were just reading Romans 8. Those that are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. He's calling him son. What is he doing right here? It's a little bit of a deity thing. You know why else it's a deity thing? And what do I mean by deity? He's claiming he's God. He's making a claim that he's God in this text. And, and I'll give you an example. If I, if I, it's Peyton's birthday, so I'll pick on him. Uh, but but if, if I, you know, if Peyton hit me in the, in the face, like just, you can give me a tap. Like if, if he tapped me in the face and then looked at Bree and said, or, or, or if he looked at Bree and said, I forgive you, or I'm sorry, that would have nothing to do with me. He, he offended me. He, he hit me, and then he would go to somebody else to reconcile. Jesus is saying, son, your sins are forgiven you. So what he's saying is, the, uh, you've offended me. You've offended God, and I'm forgiving you of the offenses you've done to me. Do you see that? That this is not, this is, it would be ridiculous for me to run up and smack somebody and then talk to somebody else and try to find reconciliation outside of the person I smacked. That would make no sense. Jesus right here is saying, son, your sins are forgiven you. So he's saying the offense was against God. And now because of my words, because, because of the faith, because of all these ingredients that are hitting Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive you of your sins. Now, we, you have to understand that there's only one that can forgive sins. Do you understand that? And, and uh, just to show you, a, one of the, the main scriptures with this is Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That Jesus, when he's forgiving sins... And he's claiming, son, he is saying, I am God. And I have the authority to do this. Because I'm hearing from my Father and the Trinity. We have three in one. God the Father, Jesus the incarnated one, and the Holy Spirit moving, dwelling. among. And this is so important for you to understand because there are so many people. There are so many people that will submit that Jesus was a good teacher. Do you know people that don't believe him as Lord but think he was a good, teach, good teacher? Do you know how, do you know how that is such a, it's, there's so much hypocrisy in that statement. Because if, how could you say he's a good teacher if he thinks he's God? If you don't think he's God but you just think he's a good teacher, he's crazy. 
if he thinks he can forgive sins and he can do all these things, and you, I think he's a good teacher. What do you mean? You think he, he, he came and claimed he was God. So you think he's just a good teacher? But, like, would any of you submit that somebody that was walking around claiming to be God, you know what, we should, we should listen to a few things that they're saying. We would all be like, you, no, blasphemy. Don't you, that person thinks they're God. They're crazy. But Jesus was claiming he was God and he was proving it on the spot. And we have eyewitness accounts to show us the progression. So when it says, right after he says, son, your sins are forgiven you, it says some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. What are they doing? Tell me out loud. They're reasoning in their hearts. Are they talking out loud? No. <laughs> the next verse. They say, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They have the right understanding but the wrong conclusion. They're saying nobody can forgive sins but God. Problem is, you don't understand he's God. You're right, theologically, only God can do that, but you're missing the point. You're standing right in the presence of the Almighty One. And you're so fixated on the methodology. You're so fixated on the outside of the cup that you're completely missing that the one that you have studied, the one that you've been longing for, the one he's standing in your midst and you're so prideful and you're reasoning in your own hearts and this is what's awesome is it says in verse eight, but immediately, we gotta love Mark, he loves the word immediately. When Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things? Do you see how Jesus is coming from every angle? He just forgave the sins of a man that dropped through the ceiling. All the people are starting to question, how could he forgive their sins? Jesus is reading their mail and says, why do you perceive this? They have to be like, what is going on? But I want to prove, I want to make a case to you that we're laughing at this. Like, how could they not see God is, is right in front of them? Do you know where I'm going with this? That even in our own lives, God has been knocking on the door before we knew him. And even sometimes for believers that they, you know, we find in Revelation, some people leave Jesus outside the door. They, get, they lose their first love. And we have to find that right here, they have religious knowledge. They have a lot of understanding, and they can't discern that the king is right in their presence. I don't, know if that, that, I don't know if that puts the fear of the Lord in you or not, but it does me. Because it makes me realize, Lord, teach me more humility. That even if you came in a way that was against some of my preconceived ideas, that I would be willing to submit to what you were doing. Do you, do you, do you realize that we can miss God so much by lifting up traditions or lifting up the way we do things that are not completely aligned with the word of God. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They, they elevated oral traditions. They elevated certain things and it, it made the purity of the word of God murky and they weren't able to be discerning anymore because they allowed their wisdom to cross sect. They let finite wisdom get in the way of his wisdom, which is freeing. But you keep seeing here, they gotta be freaking out. And then it says, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic? 
your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Now, a lot of us in the natural would say it would be harder to say, take up your mat and walk, because there would have to be an immediate natural thing to show that this is, and what, what is the world consumed with? They want to see it with their own eyes. They, and then, you know, they want to witness it with their eyes. So what is more difficult in the natural? Well, people would probably reason it's that, but what we see the price Jesus had to pay to forgive us our sins, what do you think is harder? But this is why people really want to see miracles all the time. You see, I want to say that the miracles are part, they follow. Signs and wonders follow. But I do want to make a, a bold statement that crowds want to see miracles. The bride wants to see the bridegroom. We long for him and we let him do what he pleases and we know he's a miracle worker because he is the miracle. We have, we're miracles of him. It's a, but when you see here, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or arise, take up your bed and walk. But watch verse 10 here. Remember we keep saying Jesus is going deity real big here. But that you may know the son of man, capitalized in a new King James or some of your translations, it'll say, what does it say? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic. Now, I want to take you. When Jesus says Son of Man, I have, to, I have to direct you. There are some things in the Old Testament. There's one time in Psalm 144, verse 3, where it talks about Son of Man, lowercase, referring to humanity. But right here we're seeing capitalized because of the translation, letting us know that the Son of Man is a complete God claim. And I'm going to read you Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. It says, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus was saying to this room full of religious people, I am the one. I am him. And what does he do right after he says that you have to understand the fear of the Lord that had to strike that room? Because what does he say? He says to the paralytic, paralytic man, I say, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately, he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What does Jesus do? He's, he is in this room, and he is claiming, I am God, I am him, and he is proving it to the point where anybody that would leave that room and that they would deny who he is or even try to contemplate is a complete Pharaoh spirit, complete hardness of heart, because the evidence was so clear. It was so Real, and I actually want to. I want to double down on what I'm saying because Matthew 11. You know where where was this miracle being performed? Who's paying attention? Capernaum at Peter's house. Capernaum. Watch what Jesus says in Matthew 11. And you, 
And verse 23, and you Capernaum who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Saddam in the day of judgment than for you. Do you see what I'm saying? That the miracles Jesus did were so clear, they were so evident, and they denied him. They denied him. They denied his presence. They denied his deity. And when we're reading this, when we're reading this, we see that it says, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I, I need you all to grab a hold of the fact that he's claiming to be the Son of Man. There's power on the earth to forgive sins. Now, I have to, I have to make a statement to you all. If, if he was forgiven of his sins, how quickly was he able to take up his bed and walk? Tell me how quick he was. Immediately. I want to show you something in Scripture, that something you might know but you don't have the imagery for like you should. So watch, if Jesus was able to say, take up your mat, take up your bed and walk, and he immediately took up his bed and walked. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven of you, how quickly were his sins forgiven? People that hold on to the fact, am I really forgiven? That's how quick it is. Because he sees you in this, this context, he sees you, and it's, it's important you see this. But I also wanna make an evangelism point real quick. If those four men, were willing to bring their friend and go through such great extent just for his physical healing, how much more should we be willing to go for those who are eternally damned at the moment? If they're willing to put them on their shoulders and walk and get them on top of a roof and get them down, why aren't we more willing to get people in to the kingdom. And I, I know that sometimes we can kind of get caught up in a nice church function, but I do want to really give that charge that we really do need to have such an urgency for the loss. We really do have to be at such a place. I, I just want to challenge you with that because it challenged me. I, I'm putting myself on the altar when I read that. I'm like, man, they were willing to go through all of that just for this man's physical healing. How much more should we be willing to do things to get people out of a state of eternal Damnation, or they're lost, they're sin, their souls are sin, sin sick. There's a plague of sin in their hearts. So, last point with that passage is, is this helping anybody? Do you see how beautiful this is for our application? Now, verse 12, I do want to say, what does he say? He says, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and he went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying we never saw anything like this. Do you know that bed? That, that bed represented poverty. That bed represented his current state of being. And did you notice Jesus didn't tell him to leave it? He said, take it up and go walk. Because what is he trying to say? What, he's saying, take your testimony. 
Don't let your testimony shame you. Your past, you think when the enemy tries to get you to think you are still that person, no, the bed is empty. But I don't have a problem carrying it because it was a burden before, but now it's a testimony. He, he was literally called. Jesus said, take that bed and go walk so that everybody that previously saw you as the paralytic now sees you as the man that's walking and leaping and praising God. You walk out of here with your head tall because you are a son and you are forgiven. You take that bed that's not going to be your identity anymore. That's not who you are. And you let all people see you. And you walk out and you know, and this is why those of you in this room that are still prisoned by your past or you still, you know, I, and I'm being real. There was, I, I used to do a lot of drugs. I, had, I even led people to that pathway. And there were certain times that I would actually get depressed even as a born again believer. Man, like I led that person down that path and they're still doing it and, and all these things. And I would begin, but I had to get mind renewal that, that my life was now a testimony and that, that where before the enemy had me completely gripped, I now hold that testimony high and say, I am completely delivered and that you can be delivered of it too. And I hold this high because he did it. It wasn't me getting a self-help. I didn't go through classes. Jesus redeemed me. And you have to pick that mat up and walk. Stop being shameful. Your sins are forgiven. Pick your testimony up and begin to evangelize to your family, to friends, to previous, I just wanted to really make that clear to, to you all so you don't allow the enemy to weaponize your past. It's a testimony. In the hands of the enemy, it's a weapon against you, but in the hands of God, it's a weapon to tear down strongholds. The Lord has anointed this house with so many precious testimonies. If we, we would be here for days if everybody just shared what the Lord has done. Don't be ashamed. Don't let the devil beat you up because of a bad season or whatever. No, take that bed up and walk. Your sins are forgiven of you. Now, we're only going to go just, you got just a little more? Are we going too much? You good? Too much Jesus? I mean... Most of y'all shouldn't be rushing home to eat anything. <laughs> We're getting our meal. Right after this, verse 13, it says, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. What is Jesus doing every time people come? He's teaching. He's teaching. This is why churches should not be focused on entertaining. The church is not an, who can entertain the best or entertain the most. What are you talking about? Jesus didn't say, oh, there's a lot of people here. We got to keep them. So let's, uh, uh, Peter, do some, you know, jumping jacks. You know, uh, James, you know, can you do some cartwheels? You know, uh, can, can we, does anybody do magic? Like, what are you talking about? We have the Spirit of God on the inside of us, and the world has no hope. Why do you need to entertain them? They need living water. They need Jesus. We need to teach them with our lives, not entertain them. Entertain them to hell? Come on. This is so, this, is, this room is supposed to be holy. This is the house of God. Entertainment. Now, does that mean that 
the things of God are not entertaining? Well, God has a lot of creatures around his throne, so he likes a good time. <laughs> Golden roads and things like God has got it covered. Yeah. Don't use the world's idea of entertainment. Let the book of Revelation give you the greatest sci-fi adventure of your life. Oh, man. You read the prophets. You read the Old Testament and tell me that God is, is boring. It's, it, this is, it's so important because Jesus took opportunity to teach. Parents, make sure you take opportunity to teach your children about Jesus, about God. When you're with friends that don't know the Lord... Don't just try to be merely friendly. Amen. And, you know, you don't have to suffocate people with the gospel. But I don't know about you. When I'm really in love, it's hard for me not to talk about who I love. It's going to come up some way, somehow, because there's not a topic that God has not invaded in my life. Amen. Talk about anything. I will find a way. To talk about him. And not because I have to force it, but because it's the joy of my life. Amen. And it should be the joy of all of our life. He passed by. He saw Levi, who Mark's gospel is the only account that calls him Levi. But this is actually Matthew. And he's the one that wrote the first gospel. And we find out something about him here. It says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, I want you all to know something. Please just stay with me for a moment. Is there anybody in this room? So this is, this is now millenniums have passed. Uh, we're, we're, we're at a place. Is there anybody in this room that loves taxes? Like just in general, does anybody like taxes for their birthday? Does anybody like um, to get a bill and just say, man, I love the taxes on here. Like I just, does anybody in general Love taxes. The answer is an emphatic no. Let me even ask you this. Does anybody enjoy talking to an IRS agent? Does anybody enjoy trying to get a hold of an IRS agent? Does anybody, does anybody like getting mail from the IRS? The answer is no, and this is actually 2,000 years later. People still don't like taxes. I'm just making, I want to, I'm being facetious, but I'm trying to help us see that the Roman government at this time, the Roman Empire, they literally were oppressing Jews. And a tax collector would be one that would join forces with the oppression, and then they would even bank off of it for personal gain. So the Jews considered tax collectors traitors, evil, wicked. In fact, there's probably a lot of them that would actually say that they would prefer the leper over a tax collector because the tax collector was unclean morally. They were wicked in the way that they, they deceived because what they would literally do at that time is they would come to somebody's house, they would come and they would say, this is how much you owe the government, but they would, they would overshoot the price so they could pocket whatever they deemed fit. So Jesus has picked some disciples, he's picked some fishermen, right? That's what we've seen so far. He's picked some kind of uneducated men, just. You know, maybe people were like, that's a little weird he picked them, being this pristine in his teaching and his knowledge. Like, that's a little weird he picked them. But this is when Jesus drops a bomb. Because there's a multitude of people looking at Jesus. He's teaching. They're like, man, this guy's 
amazing, remarkable in teaching. And Jesus just goes to a tax collector and he says, follow me. Everybody, all the disciples as well had to be like, no, Jesus, this isn't good. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. You, you, I don't want you, like, I really like what we got going on right now. And it's, it's kind of hard following you sometimes because you do a lot of crazy things and my mind's trying to wrap around it but please don't make me sit next to him please don't make me hang out with him don't bring him along on this tribe with us but you see what Jesus is doing here is he is challenging the way we love each other he's challenging the way people see he see each other this is God coming and he sees the divides in the economics. He sees the divide in the demographics. He sees the divide in the races and the cultures. And he comes and he, he causes confrontation on purpose to see how humble we will go to love, to allow his work. And once again, we brought this up before. Jesus does not invite Matthew. He commands him. Follow me. I just want to make that so clear that the power to follow him is in the command. Amen. This tax collector was doing his own thing. And you're going to tell me that God walked by him and said, follow me. And he could just not come. He said, follow me. And this tax collector was pulled. He was drawn by this command. And it says he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, Matthew's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors, so who do we see again? The scribes and the Pharisees, they're back. You know, we should get music for this. You know, some like, you know, just humiliating music should come up every time that they enter the picture because it's just like a dark cloud. You know, Jesus is going and it's things are happening. All of a sudden, scribes and the Pharisees are investigating to see what this man is doing. But this is no ordinary man. This is the son of God. This is the one that does. This is the one that hung the stars and the planets are nothing. This is God. This is, this, we need such a, rever like we're reading this that, could you imagine the Roman church that are, they're, they're hearing about Mark's account, they're like, he did this. He said this. He, this is who he is. And, and I, I want you all to know that Matthew was repulsed by all people and even the church. Even Israel at that time, the Jews at that time. But do you know, what, what should that mean to all of us? Are you thankful that he caused the outcast? Yeah. Are you thankful he caused the, the ones that are wicked and caught up? Like, I don't know about you, but as soon as you start justifying that God saved me because I am a little better than that person. Self-righteousness. It's coming through your nose and your eyes. You have to get a grid for this. And this is where Jesus answered. Because it says, the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And they said to the disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with the tax collectors and sinners? Does anybody see a problem with this statement? Yeah. They're saying, here, here they are. 
They're looking at Jesus sitting with a group of people. And they're like, how come Jesus is eating with sinners? They're a sinner. They're sinners. And they're saying, how could he eat with those sinners? Do you know how arrogant that is? Do you know, what do we find? There's none righteous. No, not one. And right here, the Pharisees are making a statement. They're saying, they're talking to the disciples and they're like, hey, why is he eating with these filthy sinners and tax collectors? Why does he know what he's doing? Like they think that he's out of touch. They think that he's off his rocker, but they have no clue that he created everything to make a rocker. He created every like he is him. And then what does Jesus say? I love this right here. Please let this, I mean, let this hit your heart in the most precious way right now. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, isn't it funny how Jesus doesn't tell the disciples? He's like, hey, he's like, why don't you talk to him about this? Or why don't you tell him this? No, Jesus is just like, no, I'm going to handle this right now. This is why I came. And what does he say? He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Could anybody, you know how useless a doctor would be if they avoided sick people? <laughs> Do you know how ridiculous that would be if a doctor's like, I, you know, I, I'm a doctor, but I just don't like sick people. I just don't like being near them. You're useless. You, we have no use for you with all your knowledge. You're not doing anybody any good. You say, but then it says, those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me tell you something. You can't be saved if you don't realize you need to be saved. Come on. You can't be healed if you don't realize you're sick. It's, it, this is it's something so important that you have to get in your heart. If you don't, pride will blind you so much from what you truly need and what you need to have. Like if you don't, if you don't garner a place of understanding what you need, it's got to be, you have to get to a place that even in this room tonight, there are blind spots in your life. And that's why Jesus, we see in Psalm 19, we were talking about this at the Palm Harbor Home Group uh, just two weeks ago. In Psalm 19, when it says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. What, you know what he's saying? He's saying, the psalmist is saying that there are sins that I don't even know are happening in my life. Will you cleanse me even from them? Will you show me even what I don't know and perceive? That is powerful prayer. Because sometimes we're willing to repent for what we know, but it takes a lot of humility to say, you know, there's just so much I don't know. You know, the, there, there could be things that I'm sinning and I don't even realize the way that I'm speaking to people, the way I'm talking, like, Lord, help me. And so I just want to make that emphatic point. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Could you imagine Jesus walking? looking for sick people. Did you know he has such a heart for us? Do you know in this room tonight that when you, before you came to know Christ, and if there's somebody in this room that doesn't know Christ the way I'm about to talk, I want you to know that he sees a sick person and he has deep compassion for them. Jesus came to the earth because he saw sick people. And you know what broke his heart more than anything is somebody that is sick and doesn't realize it. That's called pride. 
when you are sick and you can't even realize it? Jesus is well, and he, he sees that the sinners, that people that are tax collectors, that they want to come to him. But you see, Jesus didn't sin with the sinners. There are people who need to hear that tonight. Jesus, people will read this passage like, you see, Jesus hung out with the sinners. He did not sin with the sinners. He rescued the sinners from their sin. It's very different. Very different. It's important that you see that. So the final thing in worship team, you can come. It says we talk about fasting. And isn't this so profound that we are literally at the place where fasting I had no clue that we'd be on this tonight, but we're, we're in a corporate fast and we're going to end with fasting right here. And this is what it says. It says the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why did the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So we have right here that the disciples of John the Baptist and also we have the Pharisees' disciples are, are coming and, and they're saying, why do your disciples not fast? They're speaking to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, this is another huge deity claim. Watch. Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Do you know how powerful this statement is? This is explosive. Did you know there is not one Old Testament passage that the Messiah is directly connected to the bridegroom. Did you know you can search the entire Old Testament? There is not one reference for Messiah attached to the bridegroom. But what is, for those that study your word, what is the bridegroom attached to? God. So when Jesus says the friends of the bridegroom, you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm God. You think the Messiah, some of you think the Messiah is just a prophet, but you don't realize that the Messiah is actually God. The Son of Man. This is a deity claim. He is claiming to them the reason we're not fasting is because God is here. You don't have to mourn or fast when joy is in your midst. I am here. My disciples don't have, but Jesus taught on fasting, but he's saying my disciples will not fast because I am their meal. I am here. We're, we're, there's a joy. And he goes on to say, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will not fast in those days. Then now that's a striking statement. What is Jesus saying? There's going to come a time that I'm going to be taken from them. He's giving a sign of his crucifixion. He's giving a sign of his of his death and burial, that he's going to be taken away, that they're enjoying his presence, that they see he's there, but there's going to come a time, and it says, what are they going to do? They will fast in those days. Do you know how important it is that we're fasting? We're a fasting people. If, I want to challenge you if, you. if you're a Christian and you only fast at the beginning of the year or when other people say, I, I want to challenge you that we're actually called to be a fasting people. Uh, it, it, it's, and that's why this year as a body, we will call more corporate fast whether they're quarterly or if there's sometimes the spirit leads that we just know because of what's going on in the world or something we're contending for that we need to consecrate ourselves in that measure. But the, the thing about fasting is that Jesus connects fasting to the bridegroom because it's something about how we should be longing 
for his return. Because the fasting is saying that you're not here. You're not here with us. We have the Holy Spirit, but that's, the, Ephesians says that the Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of the inheritance and the promise because what we're really longing for is God to come and dwell with man again and be a tabernacle. That we're, that's what the end game is. And when we fast, it's us getting our affections aligned with the Maranatha cry. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Like we want him to return. And that's why fasting is such a privilege because what we're doing is we're aligning our affections and we're saying that I'm going to push away a meal because I long for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not just a mere obligation. It's a marital offering. It's, it's something that is, that is profound. And it, what does Jesus finish with here? He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the, the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine burst or puts new wine or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. What is Jesus trying to say right here? He's trying to say that your methods of fasting, the way that you fast, the way that your traditions are, Christ is saying, I have come and I'm not an addition. If you put me in your old wineskins, I'm going to blow them to smithereens. I am not able to be put and your old way of doing things. I have come to fulfill what I said I was going to fulfill, and it has to be all new because your way is never going to work. And you thinking that you can even do it my way without my spirit on the inside of you and having it, it's a no-go. He's trying to say that the new wine, that this is why we all need to unlearn so many things to be able to experience the purity of the Word of God and who He is. And I just want to challenge you all tonight that in closing, that we just read so many remarkable and we, we examined and we illuminated Jesus' deity claims of Him saying He's God. And I don't want you to walk out of this room and just have a history lesson or just kind of see. You realize that we are in the middle of a fast right now that our, our church body is and that we are going after this and that God would meet us on this night and he is getting our hearts turned. You know, this is, we have to be real. This is an election year in America. There's a lot of stuff that's about to hit the fan. There's going to be so many distractions. There's going to be so many things and you have to be so grounded in truth and in the word of God. And I don't know about you, but We've brought this up before, closing thought. If you are in this room and you're like, I just don't know if I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I wanna challenge you. What do you think the young child that is being human trafficked right now in our own city, do you think that they would like Jesus to return right now? Stop relying on your convenience and comfort as your savior in this life. We need to stir up a longing for his return. That doesn't mean that we stop stewarding what's before us. That would be ridiculous. We're, we're trying to, we're, we're, the God is using us to build the kingdom here while we're, we're, we're making a push here for as many people to be saved as possible. We're making a push in this hour. You, you keep your hand on the plow, but I'm here to tell you that if you are in this place and you're not lovesick for his return, I don't even know if you know him the way you th that you think you should. If you're not, if you don't want him to return, 
What's the gospel? Just to make your life better? He's making a new earth and a new heavens. And this isn't popular preaching because the only way you can really get a lot of people to come is if you tell them how to make their life as best as possible now. What a sad reality. What a blasphemous reality. What a shame to the gospel. There's something way better than this, saints. We have a hope. We have a hope. I would like to end the night with a song. Jackie and I, we got away for a few days and we actually got to have a little bit of time with, with some dear friends. And you know, one of the things is that, I don't know if anybody's ever heard the song, New Jerusalem. We're not gonna sing the song uh, tonight uh, because it's a long song, but I highly encourage you to listen to it from Matt Gilman. But the bridge of the song is so precious. And it says, we love the day of your appearing and we want to hasten your return. The spirit and the bride say, come for your beloved ones. And I just want us to kind of end in this, in this place tonight where we can just get our hearts that do we love that he's going to appear? Are we, are we excited that he's returning? And if we're not, can we be honest and say, Holy Spirit, forgive me for falling in love with the world. That's the truth. That if you don't long for his return, it goes to show how satisfied you are without him. We have the Holy Spirit, but Jesus has not come back. And there is, this is a hurting world. There's disease running rampant. There's children being abused. There's, there's so much immorality, so much wickedness. And there's coming a day when Jesus' reign it's going to be holy, pure. What we all long for deep inside, there will be a day when there is no more tears.